Welcome back to The Leaders We Need. I'm Joel Harder. We're nearing the end of March, and that means the legislative session in Oklahoma is just past the halfway mark. What exactly does that mean? How does the focus and work of Oklahoma's elected leaders change as the session progresses? We're going to have an episode in the next few weeks that will cover these questions and more, so stay tuned. Be sure you are subscribed to the Leaders We Need podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating, share these episodes, and leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Today, we have the first part of my conversation with Judge Ken Starr. Judge Starr is a pretty familiar name. He has a long history of public service and leadership in a number of different capacities. An attorney, legal scholar, a judge, U.S. Solicitor General, law school dean, and was previously president of Baylor University. Judge Starr is also a preeminent scholar on religious liberty, an issue that is increasingly in the spotlight today. He has a new book coming out in a few weeks, Religious Liberty in Crisis, Exercising Your Faith in an Age of Uncertainty from Encounter Books. You can pre-order a copy now wherever books are sold. I asked Ken why this book and this topic was needed right now. Is religious liberty even relevant today? Isn't it just an artifact of the past, a part of our history, because of the unique circumstances at the time of our nation's founding? Judge Starr is extraordinarily knowledgeable and shares with us the principles he views as fundamental to our nation, all of which flow from the history of religious liberty in the United States. We get into all of these topics in the first part of the conversation, as well as a little bit of his history and the experiences that shaped him as a leader. On the next episode, he's also going to share practical advice for how to navigate difficult conversations about religious liberty. You won't want to miss that. Well, let's get into my conversation with Judge Ken Starr on The Leaders We Need. Capital culture has enabled a different and a new atmosphere in state politics. This is The Leaders We Need with Joel Harder, a podcast going beyond the politics and policies to focus on the people who lead in our communities, states, and nation. Conversations that restore the civility we need in our politics while promoting the integrity we need in our leaders. The Leaders We Need with Joel Harder, a resource from Oklahoma Capital Culture. Well, Judge Ken Starr, thank you so much for taking time to join us on the Leaders We Need podcast. Is it okay if I call you Ken? Yeah, I would prefer that, actually. Right? They say that when you become a judge, you lose your first name. So I'm happy to get to get to get it to back. So thanks, Joel. And and if you'll indulge me, I, I want to tell my, my quick first Ken Star story. My wife and I were living in the Washington, D.C. area, and we're both Baylor alumni, and we had just gotten word Baylor had invited you to come and serve as the new president. And you and your wife hosted for the alumni network in the D.C. area, just a, a meet and greet. And so my wife and I just immediately you know, signed up to be the first there. And so much of what we do on this podcast is just remind folks that leaders are significant. They have very important functions and roles. And our society works because we trust them to faithfully execute their roles. But we forget that leaders are people. 
And they are people serving in those roles. And so when we uh, knocked on the door, just immediately your wife opened the door and you were standing right behind her and just the warmth and just the hospitality that you immediately showed and how we became Ken Starr fans right then and there. And it is a consistent, it's a consistent thing about you is, is how genuinely interested and engaging you are with everyone you talk to. And so we really loved being so far away from Baylor, but seeing the impact that you had on Baylor. And so that's just my first Ken Starr story I've got to share. <laughs> well, and you helped me learn to fling my green and gold afar. <laughs> that's <laughs> as, that's as right. We say in the Baylor family. Yeah, I was an adopted uh, bear, so you're a native bear. <laughs> uh, yep, I, I we we bleed green and gold in my family. Uh, my grandfather taught economics at Baylor for a number of years, and so, and I'm I'm sporting my Baylor tie uh, with uh, <laughs> with March Madness going on. So I'm going to head up to the Oklahoma Capitol, and there are some ORU fans up there, so I might not make <laughs> friends today. <laughs> the, 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 and you may know the head coach at ORU was uh, with Scott True's program here. And I tell you, Paul Mills, the head coach, is not only a great basketball mind and inspirer, he is one great preacher. I have from time to time done in my Baylor days uh, a chapel uh, for the team. And Scott Drew, uh, one of his many great, great strengths, perhaps his greatest strength, uh, is his commitment to the spiritual life and, and growth of his student athletes. Yeah. Uh, and I thought I was pretty good. But then at a, another devotional or chapel, I heard Paul Mills preach said, Boy, I don't want to have ever have to follow him again. Mighty was yeah. he in the non-pulpit pulpit. It was just yeah. really powerful. So anyway, awesome. I can understand that people are, if, if they're not a Sooner or a Cowboy right now, it's Oral Roberts. That's right. That, that's that's absolutely true. Well, Ken, we always open the Leaders We Need podcast by asking you to go back into your history a little bit and just briefly reflect on some of the experiences, maybe the the relationships that that upon reflection really impacted who you are, your your leadership style. That maybe at the time you didn't see how that was really building into uh, the the person you would become, but upon reflection, they really had an impact. What are some of those stories, experiences, relationships for you? My key uh, beyond the, the 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 household in which I was blessed to, uh, to to live, but we have to get out of the household, right? And so you yeah. go to school. And one of my heroes uh, in the New Testament is Barnabas because he was the son of encouragement. He got a new name. And, and uh, leaders encourage. Uh, they mm -hmm. try to inspire individuals to be all that they can be. And while that may sound uh, hackneyed and trite, it is so true. And well, I wasn't all that shy. I was not that terribly outgoing in high school until a teacher got a hold of me uh, and said, look, you have what we, I guess, call relational skills. You've been blessed with this. People like you, et cetera. 
uh, you need to throw your hat in the ring. And the next thing I knew, I was running for class president and uh, I got myself uh, elected. I didn't accept foreign campaign contributions. It, it was to to totally legal at <laughs> Sam Houston High School in San Antonio, Texas. And then I was encouraged by my classmates, you know, you, you've done a good job, such as it was to be class president. You should do it again. Well, yeah. that would not have happened, but for a teacher. Yeah. Ditto for a teacher counselor, too, really, who said, you need to cast your lot <laughs> in, uh, in and toward Washington, D.C., and those were formative experiences at Sam Houston High School. That's where it really began. Wow. Teachers are so important. That, of course, yeah. includes church teachers, right? Sunday school teachers and so forth. But taking the time to care about that one individual student, even though it was a large public high school. Yeah. So it really began there. We now call them mentors. Every right. leader needs to be a mentor, but also he or she needs to be mentored. Mm -hmm. One of our great Baylor alums is Drayton McLean Jr., who's a very, very successful business person. If you drive on Interstate 35 south of Oklahoma City and you find yourself crossing the Brazos River, you're looking not so much at the river these days, but at McLean Stadium. And that's right. Drayton McLean Jr. Drayton is in his 80s and is still uh, very active in business, his business, which he built very, very massively and powerfully. Uh, and he said, look, I've always had a mentor. It's just for the last 20 years or so, my mentors are younger than I. <laughs> that's, so that's the mentors are, are, are there to guide and counsel, but also to find not just your strengths. We used to call it a SWOT analysis. Mm -hmm. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. We think of that in terms of institutional leadership. What are institutions' strengths and so forth, the SWOT analysis. But you can also bring that down to the individual point. Let's do a SWOT analysis, but others can see you just as in the United States of America, the visiting young French aristocrat, Alexis de Tocqueville, visited us in the 1830s. And from his outside perspective, he was able to see things about us that we may not have seen ourselves. And his yeah. book, Democracy in America, is still read. So he was, as it were, mentoring us, <laughs> saying, here are your strengths. He also saw the weaknesses, especially mm -hmm. of slavery and our treatment of Native Americans, which is a subject, of course, very, very special to Oklahoma. Absolutely. Very pressing issue that a lot of people are talking about and working through difficult situations. You have had a long history of public service, leadership in a number of different roles and contexts. People may know you as as an attorney, as a legal scholar, a judge, a U.S. Solicitor General, a law school dean, or a university president, as you look back on the different roles and contexts in which you have been a leader and worked and served, is there anyone that just particularly stands out to you as maybe that was a role that your skills, your personality, all that goes into what we call our calling, it just clicked? Is, is there one that really stuck out to you? Well, early on to move to the profession away from 
high school uh, and college and so forth. But in law school, once again, it was a human being who reached out, grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and said, you are going to apply for a clerkship. I said, oh, okay. So I didn't know. I, I was a bit of an ignoramus. We're all ignoramuses when we're young. The key is to recognize your ignorance and you know, the things come from experience, hopefully, hopefully wisdom, but I really hadn't thought about that. And so he said, yes, you need to clerk in a, for a, a, a judge and uh, I know who you need to clerk for. <laughs> so he was my shepherd and, and guide. And he, if I was in a wilderness, <laughs> he was guiding me, feeding me yeah. manna and quail and saying, you're going to go clerk, or you need to go interview. Obviously, he couldn't place me. He could only open the door, but he did by God's grace. And then that judge, who the dean at the law school, had, who he knew, and he had a sense of this would be a good professional connection, uh, sent me to Miami, Florida, which was a really very, a very pleasant year. And that experience was so great because once again, my judge mentored me. Yeah. And that's one of the precious things about judicial chambers uh, is that the law clerks, the staff, but it's a small, integral professional family. And the judge becomes your mentor for life, mm -hmm. <laughs> your guide for life. You go back to the judge long after you've, depart you've parted from chambers and said, what should I do? So that's, again, illustrative of precisely the experience I had in high school. I needed guidance. And we need to be open to that guidance, right? The mm -hmm. scriptures teach us, you know, Rehoboam would <laughs> not listen to the wise guidance that was around him, but got a bunch of fellow uh, yuppies around him and they gave him really bad advice, right? So yeah. look to the older generation, those who've gone before, even though our young people have such information, right? They have really information, a humility of spirit, gentleness of spirit, the fruits of the spirit, Galatians 5.22, mm -hmm. to just say, I, I really... I, I, even though humility is not, not specifically identified by the Apostle Paul in the nine fruits of the Spirit, humility is a part. It's one of those undergirding things. And humility means openness to listen. Mm -hmm. I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> there, there's, there's so many things that, that you have just said that I've just seen how they really do work in this whole mm -hmm. arena of of leadership, political leadership, but mentorship specifically. And Stanley McChrystal recently wrote a book called Leader, Myth, and Reality. And he talks about that. One of the myths that we have is that we attribute everything to the leader themselves, and we ignore the the whole enterprise that's going on around the leader and the people. And Proverbs talks about this, that you can surround yourself with wise counselors or not. Mm -hmm. And that is a, a, a reality to effective leadership, is surrounding yourself with wise counselors. Most of the great progress that gets done uh, in any endeavor or organization, but certainly in our country, is uh, it's, it's more than just the leader themselves. That law professor who encouraged you and opened mm -hmm. the door, I've done a lot of research myself on mentorship. And we think about mentors as being that guide, that counselor, that identify the strengths and your blind spots. But one of the most mm -hmm. important things mentors do is they they advocate for you. 
and they open doors for you. That's one of the kindest and most helpful things a mentor can do. And you can be a mentor. You can do that for others. Well, I have a call uh, that I postponed from uh, yesterday afternoon to do exactly that with uh, one of the uh, wonderful Baylor uh, alumnus. He was president of the student body, but uh, even though he has all these gifts and attributes, he wants to come to Uncle Ken <laughs> for some uh, advice on which direction should he go and so forth. Well, Uncle Ken was once uh, Kid Ken, right? Yeah. <laughs> and exactly in that uh, situation. So that willingness to, you know, I need, I need to talk to people. And one of the things, especially for the, those who are moving into leadership uh, positions is that those who've been around the track really relish most do. I've never known a leader who doesn't, uh, relish the opportunity to, to mentor, to share experiences. I mean, scheduling and everybody's busy and so forth, but it's really one of the precious aspects of life. Once you've been blessed to run the track of life, run around the track of life uh, several times, just a footnote on our the prior uh, point, uh, it was my judge for whom I was clerking when I said judge at the end of my t- tour of duty with him one year. Judge, I've so enjoyed enjoyed this. Thank you for uh, all the training you've given me, the opportunities you've given me. And I've decided I'd like to apply to the Supreme Court of the United States for a clerkship. I know it's a stretch. I didn't go to Harvard Law School. I was number one in my class. And he said immediately, good, I'll call Lewis. Well, Lewis was his friend on the Supreme Court. He was a court of appeals judge, Lewis Powell. Yeah. And so I found myself sitting in summer chambers uh, in Richmond, Virginia, with Justice Powell. Uh, And I didn't get that clerkship, but I later found out that Justice Powell, as we say in the South, took a shine to me. I didn't know how I was doing in the interview. And he called up the Chief Justice of the United States and said, hey, I've got a reject here for you. (laughs) So you just, you know, there it is. The one thing leads to another, the beautiful connections of life. Yeah. Ken, you have a new book that's coming out in just a few weeks from now called Religious Liberty in Crisis, Exercising Your Faith in an Age of Uncertainty. And as your title excellently suggests, and I'm a great student of good titles of books uh, (laughs) as a new author myself, and yours is excellent. And that title clearly indicates that you view religious liberty as as more than a topic of just passing interest or a point of debate from time to time, but it's something that is intimately relevant to all persons of faith, desiring to exercise the tenets of their faith in public life. Why is it that religious liberty is relevant to us today? I mean, isn't this just an artifact of our past? It's it's part of our history because of the unique circumstances at the time of our nation's founding. Is religious liberty truly relevant to us today? Well, I think it's all the more relevant uh Joel, because of the pressures that mm-hmm. we're now seeing uh, arising from the culture. The law emerges out of culture. And so what's happening in the culture and what we see, uh, and I think we've seen it really at, from the outset of, the, of this century, the 21st century, is the view that's unfortunately very widespread that religion is negative. Mm-hmm. It is a very bad thing. 
that bad things have happened historically in the name of religion. True. And then, of course, look at 9-11. More recently, what we've seen in our own country is a sense that religion is being used, but especially, I'll be frank, uh, Christianity and a Christian worldview is used to inflict harm on people, Mm -hmm. to deny them their human dignity. And so we need to face up to the fact that uh, a biblical worldview is no longer culturally mainstream. It's out of the cultural mainstream. And while we might feel comfortable in our uh, on enclave, uh, mm-hmm. uh, in, in a more traditional, shall I say, part of the country, uh, golly gee, l- look at what you're seeing and hearing. And the confirmation hearing of, just, of then judge to be uh, Amy Coney Barrett, a devout Catholic, a, a really pretty ugly comment to the effect that I see that the dogma lives you know, vividly in you. The dogma, right? Dogma sounds non-rational, right? You're, so you're adhering to a traditional Catholic perspective, and that is out of step with what a federal judge should be. This is a very dramatic uh, shift. And so we see, including on the Supreme Court docket, but we also see it in what's happening in our communities with city councils taking issue uh, with, with various and sundry practices, zoning denials, questioning tax exemptions for churches and church affiliated organizations and so forth. So I felt that having long been interested in the subject, that uh, I needed to provide a tool that was useful to anyone who's interested in the subject. You don't have to have set foot in a law school. I tried to write it in such a way with a wonderful editor from Britain, no less, that uh, high school students would find it accessible. Mm. But to identify what have been our great principles, as I call them, of religious liberty in America that should be a source of unity, should be a source of unity for all persons of of goodwill. So it's also a message of hope, but it's exercising your faith in an age of uncertainty. And I could have made that strong in an age of hostility toward the exercise of your religious uh, faith. So I hope it will be a useful tool, a preparatory tool for, at a minimum, engaging in an intelligent conversation with, with your neighbor or someone at the Chamber of Commerce or in a club or civic organization which you're involved in. The, the book is, is, is a guide, if I so, do say so, to how to think about this and then how to give a reason for the hope that is within you, right. namely the hope of religious liberty. Walk me through some of those key principles that you say should really be what binds us together as society, regardless of where we come from religiously or the different faith traditions we come from. What are some of those principles that bind us together? Let me uh, first talk about autonomy. Mm -hmm. It is fundamental to our constitutional life to the way we live our lives and our society for religious institutions to be autonomous, that the government should not be interfering, save for the most compelling reasons for how uh, institutions govern themselves. Well, you say, well, that, what's hard about that? Well, what about when the church school fires someone uh, 
on what would otherwise be a forbidden ground under the federal civil rights laws. These are real cases and they're continuing to emerge. And happily, here's the point of hope, the Supreme Court of the United States has held both unanimously in one case and then just this last year in a supermajority seven to two requirement that the government just including the public accommodations folks, the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission, the EEOC at the federal level cannot interfere with a decision of a church school to fire someone on a ground that might otherwise be forbidden by federal law or even state law for that matter. Another very important principle, and that is conscientious objection. How important that has been throughout our country's history, beginning with the text of the Constitution itself, to respect the conscience of individuals of faith and not to coerce them to do things that they think are profoundly wrong. The little school children who could not, consistent with their interpretation of the Ten Commandments, uh, engage in a flag salute ceremony because to them that was a violation of thou shalt not bow down before any graven image. Not everybody's going to agree with that interpretation of the Ten Commandments, but don't we want to live in a society, a pluralistic society, where individuals can hold that view and be protected in that uh, exercise of conscience? And there we're seeing huge questions now. No. If you hold a certain view, such as a traditional view of marriage or adoption and so forth, you must conform. As I say, Caesar is now commanding you will, in fact, go forward and you will bake the cake to celebrate the same-sex wedding. These are real cases. And how do we deal with these things in a, in a thoughtful and reasoned way to what I'm seeing is preserving our pluralistic society, which is just a fancy way of saying a free society where we respect the consciences of all people. So autonomy, equality, a freedom of conscience, protecting freedom of conscience. Those are several of the ideas, I call them the great principles, that have thus far united us together and, frankly, unite the Supreme Court of the United States. Mm-hmm. I've heard you comment on that before when you look at how the Supreme Court historically uh, fallen down on some of these cases. Could you share just a little bit of, of that history and where have we been in terms of jurisprudence? Just an example of that uh, was the huge rancor, and I'm old enough to have lived through this, uh, over a school prayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Earl Warren, the Chief Justice of the United States, <laughs> who had been so successful as governor of California and so forth, you know, brought a, a, a perspective to bear that resulted in a heavy majority of the court declaring school prayer as organized by the state unconstitutional. Now, what happened then was that those cases were overread so that school children in public schools, but especially high school kids, were forbidden to start Bible study clubs. Oh, you can't do that. you got to go to the local church to do that. And happily, and this is one of the messages of the book, when courts and even Congress sees this happening, this kind of, really? 
no or you know organized school prayer can occur but even on their own time to start a bible study club and so forth and so congress responded happily with the equal access act there's equality again right so if you allow the young democrats the young republicans whatever the chess club the french club to meet you have to allow the Bible study club to form as well and not to exclude them. This is the non-discrimination principle or the, or the uh, equality principle. And yet school boards across the country resisted that. And eventually it took a Supreme Court of the United States decision to uphold the constitutionality of the Equal Access Act, which was challenged as being a violation of the First Amendment of the Establishment Clause. So sometimes we overread uh, cases. I'll just one footnote on the school prayer cases. When, uh, and I talk about this in the book, when you read the case, read the opinion, you'll come away with, you know, the Supreme Court was right on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it actually was right, in yeah. my view, because here's the state of New York, the regents, as they were called, in the state of New York. Here is the prayer that is going to be recited in the classroom. And the Supreme Court said it's none of the business of the state, of the government, to be formulating uh, prayers. And they said, well, if you don't, if you have a conscientious objection, then obviously you can opt out. But even with the opt-out provision, what business is it of the government to say, here is the prayer that's going to be recited? Yeah. <laughs> it's coercive. And in that particular case, by the way, in the New York State Board of Regents, the, the folks who objected were not just secular folks, but also people of different faiths, yeah. right, who said this, this goes to the idea of a pluralistic society. There's not going to be one prayer <laughs> right. that reflects the theological perspective of all communities, and then especially those of no faith. So uh, in any event, one of the things that the book is about is there are times when the pendulum seems to have swung so far. Impeach Earl Warren went on sober reflection said, no, the baseline really is liberty, but it's not the job of the state to be coercing people into Bible study and that sort of thing. It should be an act of freedom. And what I really appreciate how you've walked through that issue is you've really illustrated and and explained these questions that we are facing are complex and there's complexity to them and nuance. And, and rather than just approaching this, oh, well, they're attacking school prayer or they're promoting school prayer and I'm either for it or against it, there is a complexity to it and that you can ag- acknowledge and identify because of that value is liberty of the conscience and the individual that there is value and wisdom in the decision that was made, but understand also how to protect people of conscience to be able to exercise their faith. Our problems are, are, are not simple, they're complex, and they will take complex solutions. Not an internet meme. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and yet the principles are of beautiful simplicity, yeah. right? It may be that you just, you have to get past the headlines, right? Beyond right. the headlines yeah. or beyond uh, the Twitter. Here's the description. And isn't this uh, outrageous? So I think we will all do well. Our blood pressure will certainly go down yeah. if we wean ourselves from that. Oh, wait a second. And then just say, and so this, I, I have a rather traditional, call it conservative view of constitutional interpretation, but uh, a, a very able justice uh, appointed by President Clinton, Justice Stephen 
Breyer in his confirmation hearing said, when a question is posed to me, I try to return to the basic principles, (laughs) right? And that's in a way what this book is about. When we're talking about these points of conflict and what do we do with this situation? How do I think about that other than I like it or I don't like it? And that's what the book is designed to do, to ground us just like Stephen Breyer would say in these basic principles, the first principles. And they're not my principles. I didn't get this from Plato or Aristotle. They are principles that have emerged. They're going to appeal to anyone. Everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten, right? My mother's knee, etc. These are principles that are intuitive. Equality, right? Treating religious faiths the same. Don't tell Bridget Mergens, the high school sophomore at a public high school, she can't have her Bible study club. Welcome to the land of freedom where all voices are welcome. Thank you for listening to The Leaders We Need with Joel Harder, a podcast from Oklahoma Capital Culture. Oklahoma Capital Culture is a nonprofit organization shaping a culture of civility, integrity, and servant leadership among policymakers through nonpolitical and nonpartisan engagement. Learn more about Oklahoma Capital Culture and how you can help shape the leadership culture at www.capitalculture.com. Original music heard on The Leaders We Need, provided by Scott Allen Matthews at mypodcastmusic.com.